Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, we'll grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 870. While you're finding your place, anyone who enjoys stories knows that a good storyline has to have some kind of conflict, right? a problem, a source of tension that has to be resolved. And while Luke's story has had rumblings of conflict here and there up to this point, it hasn't really developed fully yet until now. But this morning, the conflict is going to come into full swing as Jesus confronts the Pharisees and their lawyers about their hypocrisy and makes them enemies in the process. And so we're in Luke chapter 11, and we're going to begin by picking up in verse 37. It says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. And so last week, Jesus finished addressing the false accusations and the challenges of the unbelieving crowd that's surrounding him. And now as we pick up again here in verse 37, we see that as he's finishing up, a Pharisee asks him to come over to his house to eat. And Jesus agrees, so he goes to the man's house and reclines at table, which, which you'll remember is the way that they ate at formal dinners or parties by laying down on their left side and then using their right hand to eat. However, Luke tells us that this Pharisee was astonished that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. He just went straight to the table. Now, just so we're clear, this washing is not referring to washing your hands as a, a method of, of hygiene or, or washing off germs, right? because everybody should do that. Right? This is instead talking about hand washing that was done for issue or for purposes of ritual purity. It's a semi-long story that we've already talked about in some ways, but because it's so important to understanding, I want to go through it uh, just for a moment to explain. And so you'll remember that the Pharisees developed as a group at coming out of the exiles that was committed to rigorously keeping the law so that the Lord would never send them back into exile again, that he would eventually send the Messiah to restore the kingdom. All right, and so they were so committed to keeping the law that they ended up making commandments about the commandments, building a fence around the law to protect it from being broken. All right? 
And some of those rules had to do with washing in order to be cleansed from any source of ritual impurity that a person may have come into contact with. And so according to the law, only the priests were actually required to wash. And even then, it was only uh, in, the, in the process of offering sacrifices and, and giving offerings. Right, but the Pharisees decided, you know what? Everybody should wash. And not only should everybody wash, but we should wash before every single meal just to make sure that, that we are ritually clean. And so that was the Pharisees' practice. But Jesus doesn't do that here. And based on what we already know about Jesus from, from the story of Luke and from other stories in the Gospels, we know that he probably doesn't do this on purpose just to make a point, which he succeeds at, right? He just completely shocks his host who can't believe what he's seeing. And apparently the astonishment must have been evident on his face, or, or maybe he even said something about it, because in verse 39, Jesus responds to him by saying, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. And so here Jesus uses dishes as a, an illustration of the Pharisees as people. He says, you make sure to clean the outside of the cup and dish so that they look nice at first glance. But on the inside, you are nasty and, and gross. And he characterizes them as, as being full of greed and wickedness. And, and he says, uh, on the inside is, is just as important, if not more important. I said, have you ever been at a restaurant and, and everything's going fine until you realize that the cup that you're drinking out of or the plate that you're eating off of is not actually clean. Maybe it still has leftover food or, or a lipstick stain from the last person that was using it. It's just, ugh, right? right? And that's exactly the point, right? In a similar way, Jesus, he's, he's saying that these Pharisees manage their behavior on the outside so that to look at them at first glance, they seem very godly, very holy, very clean. But on the inside, they're, they're disgusting. And, and he, again, he characterizes them as being full of greed and wickedness. In verse 40, he argues that the same God who made the outside made the inside also, and he expects them both to be clean. Essentially, he says, you may wash your hands a lot, but you need to wash your heart. And he tells them to give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Now, that statement is somewhat obscure, both grammatically and theologically. But I think the main idea is that having just described the Pharisees as being full of greed, Jesus is now showing what repentance would look like, which would be generosity, right? Giving to the poor that which would normally be clung to selfishly. And so this is similar to how John the Baptist dealt with the crowds and the tax collectors and the soldiers back in chapter 3, if you remember that, and showing them what repentance would look like for each of their situations. And Jesus tells them that when the inside issues of the heart have been addressed, then everything is clean for you. Meaning that if you take care of the inside, then the outside will fall into place as well. Then in verses 42 through 44, Jesus makes three pronouncements of woe against the Pharisees. Now to pronounce woe upon somebody is to declare coming misery upon them as a, as a form of judgment. It's probably the strongest statement of warning that you could possibly make to someone. And so first, Jesus pronounces woe on the Pharisees because they put a lot of emphasis on little things 
while, while neglecting more important issues. And so he notes that they tithe their mint and their rue and every herb, and those are, are small plants that actually may not have even been included under the Old Testament laws about tithing, but they ignore, on the other hand, major issues of justice and love for God. And so again, the Pharisees are obsessed with little things, not bad things, good things like hand washing and, and tithing, even small things that may not have needed to be tithed. Uh, these are actions that are relatively easy. They don't require a whole lot of effort. But they completely overlook more important issues like doing right by other people and, and cultivating a genuine love for God in their hearts. And Jesus warns that, that this approach to life is not going to end well for them. Secondly, Jesus pronounces woe on the Pharisees because they love getting the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace. You see, being a Pharisee brought with it a certain level of celebrity. Right? People knew who you were, and they noticed you. They gave you special treatment, and the Pharisees enjoyed that. Right? They enjoyed the feeling of being watched as they walked by, and of being seated at the head of the table in a position of honor, and having little kids walk up to them and ask for autographs. Right? Jesus reveals that their religion is more about people perceiving them in a certain way than it is about a genuine desire to honor the Lord with their lives. This, too, is not going to end well for them. And then finally, Jesus pronounces woe on the Pharisees because they are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. And so according to the law, coming into contact with a grave, or anything that was dead for that matter, rendered a person ritually unclean. And so because of that, it was very important for graves to be marked so that people would see them and, and would be able to avoid coming into contact with them, being contaminated in the process. And so in calling them graves, Jesus is saying that the Pharisees are spiritually dead. And by calling them unmarked, he, he's emphasizing the fact that people don't realize that about them. Right? People think that the Pharisees point the way to spiritual life. But in reality, they are graves, and they are unmarked graves. And so consequently, those who listen to the Pharisees and follow their teaching are actually led astray. And they're contaminated by their, by their teaching without realizing the danger because they trust in them. This, again, is not going to end well for them. And so Jesus isn't pulling any punches. He is laying down some hard truths here. And he's going to keep going as we pick up again, beginning in verse 45. In verse 45, it says, One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets, shed from the foundation of the world, may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers! For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. 
And as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So if you remember back to chapter 5, we talked about the fact that, that formal banquets and parties were, were public events. Right? Only invited guests would be served food, but anyone from the community was welcome to, to come and sit on the periphery and listen to the teaching or the entertainment that was provided uh, by the guests of honor. And man, on this day, this was the place to be. And in verse 45, Luke introduces a lawyer, which, which you'll remember is not referring to a legal representative in the way that we think of lawyers today. Uh, this was an expert in the Old Testament who taught the Bible professionally. And this lawyer interrupts Jesus. He says, hey, Jesus, you know, when you talk about that, about the Pharisees, you, you're insulting us also. Uh, apparently he thinks that, that Jesus is going to back off a little bit. But instead, in one of the best visuals Luke gives us in the entire story, Jesus looks at him sideways and says, oh, don't worry, I've got something for you too. And he launches into another set of three woes that come against the lawyers as well. And so first of all, Jesus pronounces woe on these religious leaders because they load people with burdens hard to bear, but they don't do anything to help carry them. In other words, they they keep handing the people all of these extra rules and regulations that they have to follow in an effort to please God. And and you have to do this, and you have to do that, and you have to do this. And as people try to hold on to all of it, it, it's overwhelming, and they they crumble under the weight of it. These lawyers have, have, have turned pursuing obedience to God into an obstacle course that is impossible to complete. While Jesus insists that the law was originally given for our benefit, the lawyers have made it into a cruel slave master that can never be satisfied. Next, in verses 47 through 51, Jesus pronounces woe against the lawyers because they build the tombs of the prophets who were killed by their ancestors. And in doing so, they stand in a a long line of God's people who have rejected the prophets. And Uh, Once again, this is an obscure statement on the surface. Building the tombs would seem to be an honorable thing to do on the one hand, and yet Jesus comes down on them very strongly for doing it. And in context, and in light of the parallel that we find in Matthew chapter 23, I think this issue comes back once again to the the distinction between outward actions and and inward realities. You see, in building up elaborate tombs, the, the, the Pharisees and the lawyers honor the prophets of old as, as great men, right? Through memorializing them. They treat them as, as men who are worthy of remembrance. But in reality, in their hearts, they continue to reject the prophets because they reject their message just like their ancestors did. You see, many of the things that the prophets condemned the ancient Israelites for are the very same things that Jesus is pointing out about the Pharisees. And so if they really honored the prophets then they would repent of their sin the way the prophets called them to do. But instead, the lawyers build monuments to prophets who are dead and and no longer pose a threat to them, which again is much easier than doing the heart work of repentance. Now because of this, Jesus refers to the wisdom of God in verse 49, which I think is actually a reference to himself. And he says that he's going to continue sending prophets and apostles, and some of them will be killed and persecuted, And and that this will happen so that the blood of all the prophets from Abel 
to Zechariah will be charged against this generation. Again, referring to, to this group of people who stubbornly reject Jesus as the Messiah. So, so that's a lot to say, and, and so we'll look at what's going on here. For one thing, you may know that Abel, who was the second son of Adam and Eve, back, way back in the, the very first book of Genesis, is never identified as a prophet in the formal sense of the word. But yet, if you think about it, Abel functioned, he, he had in, and served a prophetic function in the story in, in calling Cain to, to get on the right track and, and to get right with the Lord. Right? He tells him, if, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And he warns him, sin is crouching at the door, but you must rule over it. And so, so Abel functions somewhat prophetically here. And in his death, when Cain killed him, Abel functioned as the very first prophet to be rejected. Then on the other end, the, the last book of the Old Testament in the Hebrew arrangement of the Old Testament would be First and Second Chronicles. And the last prophet who is killed in that book is a man named Zechariah, who was put to death by King Joash in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 24. And so Jesus' point here, which, which we've seen before, is that from the very beginning to the very end of the Old Testament, God's people have consistently rejected those who brought his message for him. And the supreme expression of that is now the Pharisees' resistance to Jesus. And I think that this is the crux of the issue. Because we know that all of the, all of the prophets ultimately pointed forward to Jesus. Right? They testified of, of who he would be and what he would do. And so in, Jesus is greater than all of the prophets. And so in the same way we saw last week that Jesus is greater than Solomon and, and that Jesus is greater than Jonah, and, and therefore the people of, uh, of uh, this generation are going to be more culpable than the queen of Sheba or the people of Nineveh were. So now as the people of this generation reject Jesus and the prophets and the apostles who he will send in his name, they will experience the full judgment of having rejected and killed the prophets throughout all of the ages because they all pointed to him. In other words, by rejecting Jesus, the Pharisees and lawyers are also rejecting all of the other prophets throughout history who pointed to Jesus. And thus they will be responsible for ignoring their testimony, which again will not end well for them. Finally, Jesus pronounces woe against the lawyers because they have taken away the key of knowledge. Right? As professional teachers, their job is to help people understand God's word and to know how to respond to it properly. But instead, the lawyers have confused and complicated God's word and made responding to it properly virtually impossible. And so, so if knowledge had a front door, then, then the lawyers would not have gone through it. And, and not only that, but those who would go through it, they have hindered. Right? Not only do they not know what they're talking about, but they're misleading everyone else along with them, which is a stinging condemnation. So that's that. In no uncertain terms, uh, Jesus has exposed the Pharisees and their lawyers as frauds who are in the crosshairs of God's future judgment because of their sin. And as the chapter closes in verses 53 and 54, we see that they begin to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things. Right? Rather than recognizing the truth of what Jesus has said and, and turning to him in repentance and humility, these religious leaders prove him right by digging in their heels 
and hardening their hearts and resolving to silence Jesus instead. And so Luke's description makes it clear that from this point on, they engage in an all-out blitz of Jesus, constantly putting him on the spot and asking him all kinds of questions in an effort to find something that they can use to discredit him. And so we've already seen that they've been antagonistic towards Jesus in the past, but now they are full-on enemies who are determined to put an end to Jesus and his ministry, which we're going to see now throughout the rest of the story. And so in our passage this morning, Jesus takes on the Pharisees and their lawyers, and he reveals that true godliness is not about a bunch of superficial outward activity. It's about obedience to God's word that flows out of a heart that truly loves the Lord. And of course, we may read this story, and we may think about how crazy and dumb the Pharisees and their lawyers were for for messing so many things up. But I would caution us from failing to recognize that we have very similar tendencies in our own lives, both as individuals and as a a church. The, The truth is that there are a number of dangers of the Pharisees and lawyers that we can find in ourselves. And so I want to take a moment to examine our own hearts before we close. And so first of all, there's always the danger of traditionalism. Right, it's, it's true that the Pharisees' own rules and regulations ended up taking the place of God's Word and having more significance than God's Word did, but we can do that also. Right, we've talked many times before about how easy it is for us to just do the things that we've always done because that's what we've always done without really examining what God's Word has to say about it. Or we can begin to, to make decisions pragmatically, Right? not paying attention to what God has said about something and instead doing what we think makes the most sense in our own minds or what we think will quote-unquote work. And so we should take the opportunity in light of our passage to be reminded that our spiritual depth perception always needs to be shaped not by what we've always done, not by what other churches are doing, not, not by what we think will, will work, but based on what God has given us in his word. And we need to constantly evaluate ourselves and ask, are we doing what the Bible calls us to do in the way that the Bible calls us to do it? And if we find ways where where we're off, then we need to be willing to make course corrections rather than digging in our heels with what feels comfortable. Secondly, there's the danger of hypocrisy and making a big deal about things that don't really matter so much while neglecting much more important issues. See, the Pharisees had really clean hands, and they tithed every little thing that they had, but they were full of greed, wickedness, and injustice, and they didn't truly love God. But in the same way, we can major on minors and minor on majors. I was, I was on Facebook a while back, and I, I saw an old friend uh, sharing that the, their wedding reception was going to be at a different location uh, because they weren't allowed to have dancing at their, at their church. And I had to roll my eyes because this was like the thousandth time that I'd seen this. And as I say that, don't misunderstand me. If a church decides to establish a policy where you can't dance at a wedding reception, then that's perfectly okay. They have every right to do that. There's not necessarily anything wrong with that. The problem is that in many of these churches, uh, you could have members who are are shacked up with someone that they're not married to for months or, or even years at a time and nobody says anything about it. 
In fact, you could even get married in the church to someone who's not even a believer. And nobody's going to say anything about it. But if you think for one moment that you're going to have dancing at your wedding reception, then you've got another thing coming because this church has standards. Right? And I just think that's a really weird place to draw the line. Right? Because here we have two things that the Bible speaks very clearly about. And one thing that the scriptures are completely silent about. And yet too often these things get minimized while this thing over here gets emphasized. And this is exactly what the Pharisees and lawyers did. And, and this can happen in, in any number of ways. I've been in churches where, where you could be publicly known as a dishonest business owner or, or an avowed racist as long as nobody saw you playing dominoes or, 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 or cards, depending on your particular tradition. Right, and we could go on and on, but church, we have to realize that we are perfectly capable of coming up with extra rules about things that don't really matter and then patting ourselves on the back for following them while, while much larger issues, the, the essence and substance of things that the Lord actually call us to, are ignored. And that is, that is not where we want to be. Now, certainly, we, we need to recognize the danger of simply going through the motions of worship and devotion. Right? The Pharisees and lawyers were, were very regiment in elaborate religious observances and in, in building the tombs of the prophets. Right? But their hearts were not really in it. It was hypocrisy. And in the same way, it's very easy for us to spend time reading the Bible or, or praying or attending corporate worship or practicing any of the other spiritual disciplines while our hearts are not truly engaged in the process. And again, that's a dangerous place for us to be spiritually. And so when we find ourselves there, we need to turn to the Lord in repentance. Last and, and most, or maybe not last, but the last thing I've got for this morning, and most importantly of all, there's the danger of missing Jesus in the fog of religion. The danger of missing Jesus in the fog of religion. You see, the Pharisees and the lawyers load people up with all of these commandments that you have to do in an effort to please God. But in contrast to all the rules and regulations, Jesus calls out in Matthew 11 and says, Come to me, all you who are are, are, are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friends, the good news is that we don't have to earn God's love for us, because Jesus has come as an expression of God's love for us. Jesus lived a perfect life, and then he died a sacrificial death on the cross, where he paid the penalty that we could never pay for our sin. And, and we are called to respond to this good news by turning from our sin by giving up on ever being able to do anything that would earn God's love for us and to place all of our hope completely in what Jesus has done to save us in his life, death, and resurrection. And when we do that, we find true rest for our souls. Friends, Jesus hates hypocrisy and empty religion. And yet he invites hypocrites to turn to him for forgiveness and to receive true spiritual life. And so this morning, may we trust in Jesus, and may we allow his spirit to produce a genuine love for him that leads into true godliness. Let's pray together.